Well, good afternoon. Really nice to see you. If you don't know me, my name is Ben, and I lead a church called St. Peter's in Brockley, which is in southeast London. We planted out of KXC 11 months ago now, and you might not know it, but you very kindly gave us a huge financial gift, which actually pays my salary, so therefore my children get fed because of you, which I'm very grateful for. You also sent a team with us, Danny and Beth are with us, Danny who led worship, and we're really blessed by those guys. There's other people who've come, Joel and Helen, did they come in the evening? Those guys are with us, and Kate Parnham sends love, and there's a number of other people from KXC that are with us. So thank you for that. Thanks for your generosity. We're having a good time. Um, It's really going well, actually, and it really feels like God's on the move. So we're incredibly encouraged. You are in the middle of a teaching series called Come Holy Spirit. A couple of weeks ago, Pete talked about the person of the Holy Spirit. Last week, he spoke about the work of the Holy Spirit. And this week, I'm going to speak about how we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, how we can host the presence of the Spirit. And so I'm going to read basically from Acts chapter 2, which is the first time we read about the followers of Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. But before I do that, I just want to tell you about the first time I was filled with the Holy Spirit. A friend of mine at university invited me to church on the pretense that students got free beer if they rocked up at church. It was after the service, so I thought that's probably the church for me. And I went along, and as I was on my way to church, my friend actually bailed on me. So I ended up having to go to church on my own, and I arrived late. And I walked through the back doors of the church, and the worship had already started. And as soon as I went through the back doors of the church, I just started weeping. And I wasn't particularly prone to crying too much at the time, and I kind of thought, this is a bit embarrassing. I hope I don't actually meet anyone. And so I went and sat up on the back balcony. It was packed at the time. And I sat there, and for the entire service, I just weeped the whole time. Couldn't stop crying. Cried through the notices. It was that emotional for me. And basically didn't say hello to anyone because I was embarrassed, and then I left. And the next week, I went back again. Exactly the same thing happened. Went through the back doors of the church, started crying, couldn't stop crying for the entire service. This happened week after week after week as I was going along to this church. Eventually, I thought I'd better try and get involved and stuck in in this place. And I played guitar at the time, so I thought I'd join the worship team. And so I rocked up to the worship auditions. And the way they ran worship auditions um, at this church was they essentially just put everyone in a big circle and we just worshiped together. And then the worship leader would kind of walk around and pretend he's not listening, but he is. We all know he is. And so I'm playing um, this song on my guitar and it's about halfway through the first song, couldn't stop crying again. Just comes over me, stops crying. Everyone must have been looking at me and being like, this guy has blown his audition. And eventually I just, I was in such a wreck, I had to put the guitar down. And I sat on the floor and I literally just started slumping on the floor and ended up on my back lying on the floor. And all I can say is it felt like there was a weight on top of me as I was in the room. And eventually uh, the worship leader, I think he felt sorry for me, he came up to me and he lay a hand on me And he said, I feel like God's given me a picture for what's going on for you at the moment. And I can see this ground and it's all broken up and there's cracks in it and it feels really unstable. And as I'm looking at this picture, it's like there's this lava just coming over the ground and filling in the cracks and creating new earth. And it feels like actually what the Spirit's doing is he's creating solid ground for you again. And it's one of those words that out of context would just be weird and almost meaningless. But at the moment, it had a profound effect on my faith and how I was feeling because it put, he put, basically put his finger on exactly what God was doing in the Spirit. And so that was my first experience of being filled with the Spirit. 
And I recognize that when we talk about spiritual experiences, there'll be a number of different reactions in the room. There'll be those of us here who would consider themselves Christian, but would never have actually had an experience, a physical, emotional experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And can I just say firstly, when you became a Christian, you received the Holy Spirit. So it's not like you have to go through some sort of second baptism to get the Holy Spirit. That's not the case at all. The point of the New Testament is that you can go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So for you guys tonight, actually the message is there's so much more of the presence of God for you as you step out into what you're called to do. And let's be honest, if you're trying to do the Christian life without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are doing amazing. I don't know how you're doing it. I don't know why you're you're even here. But to be honest, without it, it must be impossible. So tonight, the message for you is you can have more and you can be sustained by the power of the Spirit. There'll be those of us here who aren't Christians and have no idea what I'm talking about, but you're here because a friend dragged you here. And the idea of a spiritual experience is totally foreign to you. Now, for those sorts of people, it's really important for you guys to know that actually this is something that is incredibly common for people when they open themselves to the presence of God. In my old church, before I planted in, in Broccoli, I used to lead something there that was called the Alpha Course, and it was a, basically a course for people who wouldn't consider themselves Christians to explore the bigger questions of life. And on that course, there's a weekend away, and on the weekend away, we talk about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, and then we basically get a room full of non-Christians, people who weren't used to coming to church at all, wouldn't say they believe in Jesus at all, to essentially wait there and ask for an experience of the Holy Spirit. And time and time and time again, people will be completely filled with the Holy Spirit. I see it so much, and it's incredible to watch it happen. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you can still be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can still experience the love that God has for you. I was actually speaking to a friend this morning um, who comes to our church who wouldn't consider himself to be a Christian, and he's head of security for one of the big banks in town, and he says one of the biggest things about risk and about security in the banks, the biggest thing they teach their employees is to basically do mindfulness, is to essentially empty themselves of the chaos that's in their mind and in their heart. And he says, in order to react to trauma and to react to risk and to react to stuff going on, you have to have a mind that's ready, a mind that's not filled with a bunch of kind of emotional stuff that's going on. Now that, I would say, and this guy's not a Christian, I said to him this morning, that is one step towards being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because so often we have to almost empty ourselves of all the stuff that's going on in our mind and confusing us and the chaos so that we can then be filled up again. I love the idea of mindfulness and I love that lots of people are talking about it but I think it's so sad that you get so far and then actually when you bring yourself out of meditation or that kind of thing essentially your mind and your emotions just get filled up again with the stuff of the world and the chaos whereas actually as Christians what we believe is we can fill ourselves with the spirit, spirit of peace so that we can actually go out and maintain that for our days. There'll be those of us here who, when you became a Christian or a long time ago, you experienced the presence of God and you experienced an amazing um, emotion of being filled with the Holy Spirit, but it feels like that was a long, long time ago. It feels like it's becoming increasingly distant in your memory, and the message for you tonight is that you can be filled again with the Holy Spirit, and I'll speak about that in a moment. And then there's finally, there'll be some of us here, and this is the fun one, there'll be some of us here who are currently in the flow, It feels like you're full to overflowing of the Holy Spirit. It feels like when you pray for people, you get words straight away. It feels like when you pray for healing, you have faith for healing. When you come to church, you're instantly open to the presence of the Spirit and stuff's kicking off. And the important thing for you guys to hear tonight is that you need to go on being filled. 
Jesus talks about remaining in the vine as we do what we see our Father doing. And the only way you're going to be able to continue is if you stay in the vine, is if you keep on receiving his presence. So, what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Acts 2. This is the first time the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, Jesus essentially said to the apostles who were gathered in the upper room, they were praying, and Jesus came and visited them. They're all astonished because he's come back from the dead. He says to them, it's better that I go so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit because I want you to become witnesses to the ends of the earth. And fair enough, Jesus then ascends into heaven, and the apostles and disciples were waiting in the upper room. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So what's going on there? Well, four things are happening. So they're praying and they're anticipating this gift that Jesus had promised them. He said, John baptized with water, but I baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And suddenly it happens. Four things happen. Firstly, they hear something. There's a sound like a violent blowing of a wind goes through the place. Secondly, they see something. They look around and they see on their friends' heads what seems like tongues of fire on their heads. Understandably, they spill out into the streets, probably because they think the place is on fire. And then they start start to feel something. They're drenched in the power of the Holy Spirit. That word fulfilled there in the Greek is akin to that of a tropical rainstorm. It's literally like they're drenched with the Holy Spirit. And as they burst out into the streets, they start to do something. They speak in other tongues. And in this instance, the gift of tongues is given so that they can proclaim the gospel to the people that are gathered there. So people would have come together um, to celebrate the law and the first fruits of the harvest. That's what Pentecost was all about and essentially they would have come from all the surrounding regions lots of different languages the guys burst out and they start speaking in other languages so the gift of speaking in tongues is sometimes given so that we can speak to someone in a language that we wouldn't necessarily know unless the spirit had given us the gift in order to be able to do that I've been in times of ministry when we've prayed for people and not me but somebody else will be praying for someone in tongues and the person we're praying for has opened her eyes and looked at the person praying and said how do you know Arabic and the person's like I have no, I've never spoken Arabic before in my life and the person said to this other person you are explaining how much God loves me in Arabic and that's the, just the power of the gift of tongues so that's one way that the gift of tongues can come to a second way the gift of tongues is given to us so that we can we can express our love to God. It is the only gift of the Spirit that's given for our benefit. So all the other gifts of the Spirit, healing, prophecy, is given so that we can build each other up, so that we can build the church up as a whole. The gift of tongues is given to us so that we can express our praise to God. And what happens as we do that, as we speak in tongues, as we worship in tongues, as we've just done so, it edifies ourselves. It builds ourselves up. And so the idea of tongues essentially is a gift that's given to us by the Holy Spirit so that we can express our praise and love and adoration to God in a realm that goes beyond the limits of human language. So you know when um, you're really happy 
and you don't really have any words to express how happy you are, and all you can really do is let out a high-pitched squeal. Uh, that will I do. Um, or when you're really sad, and you don't have any words to express how sad you are, and all you can really do is kind of put your head down into your pillow and just groan the whole time. You don't have any words to explain how sad you feel. Well, the gift of tongues from the Holy Spirit is given to us in those occasions so that we can express our love and our heart and our adoration and our deepest longing of our soul to God. It's a little bit like when... My mum, or when my wife's mum met uh, my, I've got three daughters, but every time they said it actually, when they meet a baby, they pick up their granddaughter, it's granddaughters in my case, we don't have any grandsons, and they look at the granddaughter and they go, they literally, they have no words to explain how much they love this granddaughter, they're looking at it and they're making all these weird sounds and they say, oh, I could just eat you, (laughs) which is actually cannibalism. It's a terrible thing to say, but essentially what's happening is they have no words to express how much they love this child, and so therefore, they need the gift of tongues. So, that's what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's quite exciting. You realize as you read the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, that this isn't actually an isolated experience. There's this guy called Saul, who changes his name to Paul, really helpfully. And he basically persecuted Christians, and he hated them, and he was Jewish. And basically anyone who was Christian, he would seek them down, and he'd either lock them in prison or he'd condemn them to be stoned. And so Saul is walking on this road on the way to a place called Damascus. He experiences the risen Jesus, and Jesus comes to him and basically says, why are you persecuting my church? And he's rendered blind. And then he kind of carries on with his journey. And another guy who's a disciple of Jesus called Ananias also is visited by Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to go to this house where Saul is and I want you to pray for him that he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine getting that task? This guy that you know kills Christians. I want you to go and pray for this guy in Jesus' name. So anyway, Ananias is much braver than me. And here's what he does in chapter 9, verse 17. Ananias went to the house and he entered it where Saul was. He placed his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you can see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Exactly the same word in the Greek, tropical rainstorm drenched in the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So that's what happened. He's filled with the Spirit. Here's what he does with that experience. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus at once, straight away. He started to preach in synagogues. This is where he would previously be teaching about the Jewish law, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's literally reversed the whole thing. Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him, they were astonished, understandably. They said, isn't this the bloke who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? He used to persecute them, but he's filled with the Spirit. And the whole thing changes. Everything changes. So these aren't isolated incidences in the early church. Just a chapter later in Acts chapter 10, basically there's a bunch of non-Jewish people that get filled with the presence and power of God. So up until this point, the disciples thought that actually this was a gift only given to Jewish people, those who were part of the nation of Israel. But then Peter gets this very complicated vision in the night and he decides it might be for others. And so therefore when a Roman centurion comes to Peter, who's one of the disciples, and says, I want you to come and tell me and my household about Jesus, he accepts the invitation and he produces an incredibly long talk. And I think the Holy Spirit gets fed up by the end. And then in verse 44 of chapter 10, it says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message, which would help if the sermon goes on too long. The circumcised believers, that's just the Jewish people, who had come with Peter, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, drenched, 
on even on the Gentiles, dirty Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising. Exactly the same thing happened. They experienced the Holy Spirit and they start praising God in other tongues. These aren't isolated incidences. And as you read about the history of the Christian church, we have 2,000 years worth of these kinds of stories. So what do they mean? What's it all about? Well, all of these experiences are an expression of this. This is Luke chapter 4. Because remember, the Spirit is a person. And more specifically that, the Spirit is part of the Godhead, the Trinity. It's the Spirit of Jesus that we're experiencing. And here's Jesus talking about what the Spirit does. Chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's quoting an ancient Old Testament book of Isaiah. He says, because he has anointed me. Anointed just means that he's been given a purpose, but not just a purpose. It's not like he's just got a plan. Anointed means you've got the power to actually see that purpose come about. So that's what happens when we receive the Spirit. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What's the good news to the poor? Essentially that the kingdom of God was at hand. The presence, the rule, the reign, the love of God is here. You can literally reach out and you can grab it right now. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. In the Isaiah passage, it says to bind up the brokenhearted. And obviously, this is speaking literally and figuratively. So it's those things in our life that dog us, that imprison us, that stop us from living life in all its fullness. The Spirit comes so that we can have freedom from that stuff. He sent me to proclaim recovery of sight. For the blind, again, literally and figuratively. So we know that Jesus is the light of the world. And therefore, when we experience the spirit of Jesus, it's like darkness flees. So those areas of our life that feel dark right now, when we receive the presence of the Holy Spirit, the spirit shines a light on that stuff and the darkness dispels and we're able to actually deal with it in the power of the spirit. But also, literally, the first miracle I ever saw was a girl who'd been blind in her left eye received sight once she was prayed for for healing. So someone had a word of knowledge on the stage and they said, I feel like there's some Someone here who's been blind in her left eye for seven years. I was sitting in the congregation at the time. I thought, that is very specific. And also, there'll be no one here with that condition because I would have seen them. I ended up, basically, I was sitting next to this girl who'd been blind in her left eye for seven years. I obviously didn't talk to her in the break. Anyway, she comes forward. She's prayed for. Instantly, she can heal out of her le- see out of her left eye. We knew because she could cover her right and she could read stuff off of the wall. I saw the email string between her and her family back home. They actually couldn't believe it. It's literally unfigurative. Uh, what else has he done? The spirit's here. Recovery of sight for the blind. Set the oppressed free. So similar sort of sense. This is the idea that actually without the Holy Spirit, we can sometimes live under oppression. There's so much in the world that feels like it's oppressing us. You only need to walk out your front door in the morning. And so often it feels oppressive, doesn't it? And when we receive the Holy Spirit, it can set us free from that oppression. It can lead us. In the Bible, it often talks about being leading us into wide open spaces. You can be in the most crowded area of London with absolute chaos all around you. But if you're filled with the presence of God, it feels like you're in a wide open space. That is the most incredible effect of the Holy Spirit. And all of this was thought to be an expression of what Jesus says here is the year of the Lord's favour, verse 19. And essentially, the year of the Lord's favour was all about the year of Jubilee for the Jewish people. So every 50 years, what would happen in the nation of Israel is that all prisoners would be set free. All land would be divided up equally again amongst the people of Israel. All debts that were owed would be cancelled all on the 50th year, which is brilliant if you were put in jail on the 49th and sentenced to 20 years. It would all be done back together. And it was supposed to be an expression of what it's like when heaven comes to earth. It's as it was always supposed to be. And that's what Jesus is saying. The spirit of the Lord is on me so that we can bring heaven to earth. 
So if that's what the Spirit does, what it looks like, and what it's for, what qualifies us for an experience of the Holy Spirit? How do we get it? What qualifies us? This is Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. There's more books in theology written about these two verses than any other verses in the entire Bible. The reason is, this basically goes to the core of what it means to be human. It's answering a question from a Christian perspective that the whole world is asking, whether it knows it or not. And here's the Christian answer. Then God's, basically it's the creation narrative, lots of animals and stuff. And then the narrative slows down so as to experience, this is really important, this bit. So then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And likeness of God. Well, in order to be able to understand it, you have to kind of know what the writer of the Genesis creation account is actually alluding to there. And so the focus of all the writing about these two verses is on what it means to be image and likeness. The Hebrew words for image and likeness are salem and demute. And the problem with those two words is they don't appear in the Old Testament that much. The only times they do appear is in relation to the creation of foreign idols in, in foreign religions. And so in order to work out what they mean, theologians start to look at other kind of writings that were written at a similar time as the creation account in Genesis in order to kind of employ this comparative approach to work out what it means to be human. And when they did that, what they realized was exclusively these two words refer to this idea of ancient Near Eastern religions creating idols and placing them around their own kingdoms and in other kingdoms. Now, this is profound when you consider what they believe these idols were actually going to be. Essentially, they would create these stone or wooden idols, and then they would go through this complex birthing ritual so as to give life to this idol. They would then place it in a part of their kingdom or in a part of a foreign kingdom so as to claim that ground for their own. And they would basically believe that what is true of the God this idol represents is also true of the idol. They believe that this idol literally embodied the power and the presence of God of the God that, that it represented. Now that's incredibly profound because what you find in the Genesis account is it's a polemic of the other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts at the time. So whereas the other creation accounts essentially uh, had tons of gods involved in the creation, it was absolute chaos. They were at war with each other and therefore the world came about as a result. The writer of Genesis is saying, no, there was one true God, it was chaos, and the one true God brought order, order out of the chaos and made it good. Whereas in the other ancient Near Eastern accounts there's war, in this one, it's about bringing peace and about bringing wholeness and about bringing order. And so therefore, what actually this writer of Genesis is saying about humanity is whereas in the other creation narratives, you have these idols that are actually effectively mute and dumb, the idols that the true God of Israel have, us humans, me and you, can literally embody the power and the presence of the God they represent. So what qualifies us to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do anybody in here consider themselves to be human? Anyone? Just a few of you. Very strange. What are you? You qualify for being filled with the presence of the Spirit if you're human. And as we know, Genesis 1 is just the beginning. 
and we have Genesis 2, where Adam and Eve essentially didn't know who they were. They lost the sense of their identity, and they started to try and do things in their own strength. And the whole of humanity unravels as a result. There's this story of lost identity throughout the whole of the Bible, and it's Jesus that brings it back. Jesus, the true image and likeness of God, shows us what it means to be filled with the power and the presence of God once more. And so therefore, it's his spirit that lives in us as we're filled. And this process is basically one of being recreated into who we were always originally supposed to be. That's why we don't just get filled with the the spirit once. It's an ongoing process. In the same way that we constantly pray for more of the kingdom of God, because we know that actually the kingdom is coming. It's on its way. It's around us, but we need to start praying it in and seeing it come in. We need to have the kingdom of God actually displace what isn't the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness, which we see all around us. It's exactly the same in us. We are being recreated into the image and likeness of the one true God. We are filled with his power and his presence, but it's something that we need to keep on doing. Because we leak, basically, and because the world actually knocks it out of us. And so that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't a one-time event. Let me just read that to you. So chapter 5, verse 17, therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. What's the Lord's will? Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. We all know that. Instead, be filled, same word in the Greek, drenched, tropical rainstorm, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's something we go on doing. We keep getting filled. We keep being recreated in the image and the likeness of God. So final question, how can we get filled? If we're all qualified, Because we're human, how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? This is Jesus on the Holy Spirit. He just taught his disciples how to pray. So it's the the Lord's Prayer, which you all know. Well, you might know if you had to do it at school like I did. If you don't, it's our Father in Heaven. By the way, our Father in Heaven. So the disciples who were listening to the prayer would have known what it meant to have God being in Heaven as distant, untouchable, holy, set apart, unable to be kind of contact with. But the idea that Jesus taught his disciples to pray our Father in Heaven would have been earth-shattering for them. This idea that you can relate to God as Father is unbelievable. And so therefore, in this passage, after his prayer, he tries to explain what this relationship looks like. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. So Luke 11, verse 9, he says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks you for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, even though you are evil, which sounds harsh, but what he's saying is if you then, even though you are self-obsessed, which is essentially what sin is, it's a life turned in on itself, that's how you describe it here, and it basically means all you're really thinking about is yourself. If you then, if your child asks you for a loaf of bread or an egg, can actually muster up the courage inside of you to actually give them a loaf of bread or a, whatever it is, a fish, if you then, how much more can your hev- father in heaven who is perfect who has none of that tendency to be self-related, who has none of that tendency to be self-focused, in fact, only ever really thinks about us and his creation, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is perfect, give the Holy Spirit, his presence, his power to those who ask? Five times in that passage, Jesus says, you want the Holy Spirit? You ask. We overcomplicate it. Literally, we just need to ask. 
Seek and you'll find. Knock, the door will be opened. Ask and his presence will be given to you. There's a lovely little language change between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to the writer's description of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit is ruach, which sounds angry, but it means wind. So the idea is in the Old Testament, the spirit is like this uncontrollable force of nature. The spirit comes in a fire or in a tornado or in a wind. And so the idea is actually the spirit is untouchable. If we go near the Holy Spirit, then we're going to suffer because we'll get burnt or we'll get taken out. In the New Testament, the word for the spirit is pneuma, which means breath. So the spirit's gone from an uncontrollable force of nature to as close as breathing to us. Um, when my first child was born, Elia, she's five now, uh, there were lots of complications in her, uh, her birth, basically. And um, my wife now had to have an emergency C-section. And so she went through all the awful process of labor. And then right at the end, Elia's blood pressure kept dropping. So they had to rush her into surgery. And we went into surgery, and I had to get all my um, scrubs on and stuff. And I was sat in um, the operating theater watching hundreds of people buzz around. No wonder the NHS are broke. There's tons of people in there. And basically, they had to pull Elia out of Hanel's pelvis. Too much detail, but she was stuck. And they pulled out. And I remember someone saying to me, whether it's C-section or natural birth, when your baby comes out, you have to wait a little while before the baby starts crying and, and essentially takes his or her first breath. And so I was prepared for a little bit of a wait, but I'm sat there in the corner because I was scared. And I'm waiting for Elia to start crying. And one minute passes, she doesn't start. She doesn't start. She doesn't take a breath. Two minutes in, three minutes in, four minutes in, five minutes in, she's out. At that point, the surgeons start running around. Nurses, literally one of them pushed me out of the way to get to a cupboard. And they start throwing things out of the cupboard. Six minutes in, seven minutes in. I'm sitting there desperate for my daughter to start crying. And ten minutes in, they intubated her. And she took her first breath and started crying. I have never been so desperate for breath in my life. And here's the important truth. The spirit is to us spiritually, exactly the same as oxygen and breath is to us physically. Without being filled with the Holy Spirit, we can't live the life that we were created to live. We can't be the people that we were created to be. And this beautiful relationship between a dad and his son or his daughter is exactly the same as me in that operating theatre. I didn't even know Elia. But I was desperate for her to breathe. Your God, your creator, your father knows everything about you. He is just as desperate for you to breathe deeply of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to go on being filled with the Spirit, to become the people that you created to be. And the only way we do that is by asking.